the secret soul of things. As we have seen, the starting point of the concrete was Duchamp's famous or notorious bottle rack. The bottle rack was not intended to be artistic in itself. Duchamp called himself an anti-artist. But it brought to light an element that was to mean a great deal to artists for a long time to come. The name they gave it, the, the name they gave to it was Objet Trouvé or Ready-Made. The Spanish painter Juan Miro, for instance, goes to the beach every dawn to collect things washed up by the tide. Things lying there waiting for someone to discover their personality. He keeps his finds in his studio. Now and then he assembles some of them and the most curious compositions result. The artist is often surprised himself at the shapes of his own creation. As far, as far back as 1912, the Spanish-born artist Pablo Picasso and the French artist Georges Braque made what they called colleges from scraps of rubbish. Max Ernst cut clippings from the illustrated papers of the so-called age of big business assembled them as the fancy took him and so transformed the stuffy solidity of the bourgeois age into a demonic dreamlike unreality. The German painter Kurt Schwitters worked with the contents of his ash can. He used nails, brown paper, red scraps of newspaper, railway tickets and remnants of cloth. He succeeded in assembling this rubbish with such seriousness and freshness that, su that surprising effects of strange beauty came about. In Schwitter's obsession with things, however, this manner of composition occasionally became merely absurd. He made a construction of rubbish that he called a cathedral built for things. Schwitters worked on it for ten years and three stories of his own house had to be demolished to give him the space he needed. Schwitters' work and the magical exaltation of the object give, to give the first hint of the place of modern art in the history of the human mind and of its symbolic significance. They reveal the tradition that was being unconsciously perpetuated. It is the tradition of the Hermetic Christian Brotherhoods of the Middle Ages and of the alchemists who conferred even on matter, the stuff of the earth, the dignity of their religious contemplation. Schwitter's exaltation of the grossest material to the rank of art, to a cathedral in which the rubbish would leave no room for a human being, faithfully followed the old alchemical tenet, according to which the sought-for precious object is to be found in filth. Kandinsky expressed the same ideas when he wrote, everything that is dead quivers, not only the things of poetry, stars, moon, wood, flowers, but even a white trouser button glittering out of a puddle in the street. 
Everything has a secret soul, which is silent more often than it speaks. What the artists, like the alchemists, probably did not realize was the psychological fact that they were projecting part of their psyche into matter or inanimate objects. Hence the mysterious animation that entered into such things and the great value attached even to rubbish. They projected their own darkness, their earthly shadow, a psychic content that they and their time had lost and abandoned. Unlike the alchemists, however, men like Schwitters were not contained in and protected by the Christian order. In one sense, Schwitters' work is opposed to it. A kind of monomania binds him to matter, while Christianity seeks to vanquish matter. And yet, paradoxically, it is Schwitters' monomania that robs the material in his creations of its inherent significance as concrete reality. In his pictures, matter is transformed into an abstract composition. Therefore, it begins to discard its substantiality, substantiality and to dissolve. In that very process, these pictures become a symbolic expression of our time, which has seen the concept of the absolute correctness, concretedness of matter undermined by modern atomic physics. Painters began to think about the magic object and the secret soul of things. The Italian painter Carlo Cara wrote, It is common things that reveal those forms of simplicity through which we can realize that higher, more significant conditions of being where the whole splendor of art resides. Paul Klee said, The object expands beyond the bounds of its appearance by our knowledge that the thing is more than its exterior present to our eyes. And Jan Bazain wrote, An object awakens our love just because it seems to be the bearer of powers that are greater than itself. Saying of this kind recalls the older chemical concept of a spirit in matter, believed to be the spirit in and behind inanimate objects like metal or stone. Psy psychologically interpreted, this spirit is the unconscious. It always manifests itself when conscious or rational knowledge has reached its limits and mystery sets in, for man tends to feel the inexplicable and mysterious with the contents of his unconscious. He projects them, as it were, into a dark, empty vessel. The feeling that the object was more than met the eye, which was shared by many artists, found the most remarkable expression in the work of the Italian painter Giorgio di Chirico. He was a mystic by temperament, and a tragic seeker who never found what he sought. On his self-portrait in 1908 he wrote, Et quid amabo mystic vod enigma est, and what am I to love if not the enigma? Kiriko was the founder of the so-called Pitura Metaphysica, Every object, he wrote, has two aspects, 
the common aspect which is the one we generally see and which is seen by everyone and the ghostly and metaphysical aspect which only rare individuals see at moments of clairvoyance and metaphysical meditation a work of art must relate something that does not appear in its visible form Kiriko's works reveal this ghostly aspect of things. They are dreamlike transpositions of reality, which arise as visions from the unconscious. But his metaphysical abstraction is expressed in a panic-stricken rigidity, and the atmosphere of the pictures is one of nightmare and of fathomless melancholy. The city squares of Italy, the towers and objects are set in an over-acute perspective, as if they were in a vacuum, illuminated by a merciless cold light from an unseen source. Antique heads or statues of gods conjure up the classical past. In one of the most terrifying of his pictures, he has placed beside the marble head of a goddess a pair of red rubber gloves, a magic object in the modern sense. A green ball on the ground acts as a symbol, uniting the cross opposites. Without it, there would be more than a hint of psychic disintegration. This picture was clearly not the result of over-sophisticated deliberation. It must be taken as a dream picture. Kiriko was deeply influenced by the philosophies of Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. He wrote, Schopenhauer and Nietzsche were the first to teach the deep significance of the senselessness of life, and to show how this senselessness could be transformed into art. The dreadful void they discovered is the very soulless and untroubled beauty of matter. It may be doubted whether Kiriko succeeded in transposing the dreadful void into untroubled beauty. Some of his pictures are extremely disturbing. Many are as terrifying as nightmares, but his effort but in his effort to find artistic expression for the void, he penetrated to the core of the existential dilemma of contemporary man. An example of surrealist art Les Souliers Rouges by the French painter René Magritte Born 1896, much of the disturbing effect of surrealist painting comes from its associations, association and juxtaposition of unrelated objects, often absurd, irrational and dreamlike. Nietzsche, whom Kiriko quotes as his authority, has given a name to the dreadful void in his saying, God is dead, without referring to Nietzsche. Kandinsky wrote in On the Spiritual in Art, Heaven is empty, God is dead. A phrase of this kind may sound abominable, but it is not new. The idea of the death of God and its immediate consequence, the metaphysical void, had troubled the minds of 19th century poets, especially in France and Germany. It was a long development that, in the 20th century, reached the stage of open discussion and found expression in art. The cleavage between modern art and Christianity was finally accomplished. 
Dr. Jung also came to realize that this strange and mysterious phenomenon of the death of God is a psychic fact of our time. In 1937 he wrote, I know, and here I am expressing what countless other people know, that the present time is a time of God's disappearance and death. For years he had observed the Christian God image fading in his patient's dreams, that is, in the unconscious of modern man. The loss of that image is the loss of the supreme factor that gives life a meaning. It must be pointed out, however, that neither Nietzsche's assertion that God is dead, nor Kiriko's metaphysical void, nor Jung's deductions from unconscious images have anything final to say about the reality and the existence of God or of a transcendental being or not-being. They are human assertions. In each case they are based, as Jung has shown in, in Psychology and Religion, on contents of the unconscious psyche that have entered consciousness in tangible form as images, dreams, ideas or intuitions. The origin of these contents and the cause of such transformation from a living to a dead god must remain unknown on the frontier of mystery. Kiriko never came to a solution of the problem presented to him by the unconscious. His failure may be seen most clearly in his representation of the human figure. Given the present religious situation, it is man himself to whom should be accorded a new, if impersonal, dignity and responsibility. Jung described it as a responsibility to consciousness, but in Kirikov's work man is deprived of his soul. He becomes a manikino, a puppet without a face, and therefore also without consciousness. In the various versions of his great metaphysician, a faceless figure is enthroned on a pedestal made of rubbish. The figure is a consciously or unconsciously ironical representation of the man who strives to discover the truth about metaphysics <coughs> and at the same time a symbol of ultimate loneliness and senselessness or perhaps the manikini which also haunt the works of other contemporary artists, are a premonition of the faceless mass man. When he was 40, Kiriko abandoned his pittura metaphysica. He turned back to traditional, no, traditional modes, but his work lost depth. Here is a certain proof here for it. Her is certain proof that there is no back to where you came from for the creative mind whose unconscious has been involved in the fundamental dilemma of modern existence. A counterpart to Kiriko might be seen in the Russian-born painter Mark Chagall. His quest in his work is also a mysterious and lonely poetry and a ghostly aspect of things that only rare individuals may see. But Chagall's rich symbolism is rooted in the piety of Eastern Jewish Hasidism and in a warm feeling for life. He was faced with neither the problem of the void nor the death of God. He wrote, Everything may change 
in our demoralized world except the heart, man's love and his striving to know the divine. Painting, like all poetry, has its part in the divine. People feel this today just as much as they used to. The British author Sir Herbert Reed once wrote of Chagall that he never quite crossed the threshold into the unconscious, but all, has always kept one foot on the earth and has nourished him. This is exactly the right relation to the unconscious. It is all the more important that, as Reed emphasizes, Chagall has remained one of the most influential artists of our time. With a contrast between Chagall and Kiriko, a question arises that is important for the understanding of symbolism in modern art. How does the relationship between consciousness and the unconscious take shape in the work of modern artists? Or to put it another way, where does man stand? One answer may be found in the movement called Surrealism, of which the French poet André Breton is regarded as the founder. Kiriko too may be described as a Surrealist. As a student of medicine, Breton had been introduced to the work of Freud. Thus, dreams came to play an important part in his ideas. Can dreams not be used to solve the fundamental problems of life, he wrote. I believe that the apparent antagonism between dream and reality will be resolved in a kind of absolute reality, in surreality. Breton grasped the point admirably. What he thought was a reconciliation of the opposites, consciousness and the unconscious. But the way he took to reach his goal could only lead him astray. He began to experiment with Freud's method of free associations, as well as with automatic writing in which the words and phrases arising from the unconscious are set down without any conscious control. Breton called it thought's dictation, independent of any aesthetic or moral preoccupation. But that process simply means that the way is opened to the stream of unconscious images, and the important or even decisive part to be played by consciousness is ignored. As Dr. Jung has shown in this chapter, in his chapter, it is consciousness that holds the key to the values of the unconscious, and that therefore plays the decisive part. Consciousness alone is competent to determine the meaning of the images and to recognize their significance for man here and now, in the concrete reality of the present. Only in an interplay of consciousness and the unconscious can the unconscious prove its value and perhaps even show a way to overcome the melancholy of the void. If the unconscious once in action is left to itself, there is a risk that its contents will become overpowering or will manifest their negative, destructive side. If we look at surrealist pictures, like Salvatore Dali's The Burning Giraffe, with this in mind, we may feel the wealth of their fantasy and the overwhelming power of their unconscious imagery. But we realize the horror and the symbolism of the end of all things that speaks from many of them. The unconscious is pure nature, and like nature, pours out its gifts in profusion. But left to itself and without the human response from consciousness, it can, again like nature, 
destroy its own gifting sooner or later, sweep into annihilation. The question of the role of consciousness in modern painting also arises in connection with the use of chance as a means of composing paintings. In Beyond Painting, Max Ernst wrote the association of a sewing machine and an umbrella on a surgical table. He is quoting from the poet Lautremont is a familiar example which has now become a classical of the phenomenon discovered by the surrealists that the associations of two or more apparently alien elements on a plane alien to both is the most potent ignition of poetry. That is probably as difficult for the layman to comprehend as the comment Breton made to the same effect. The man who cannot visualize a horse galloping on a tomato is an idiot. We might recall here the chance association of a marble head in red rubber gloves in Kiriko's picture. Of course, many of these associations were intended as jokes and nonsense, but most modern artists have been concerned with something radically different from jokes. Chance plays a significant part in the work of the French sculptor Gien or Hans Arp. His woodcuts of leaves and other forms thrown together at random were another expression of the quest for, as he put it, a secret primal meaning slumbering beneath the world of appearances. He called them leaves arranged according to the laws of chance and squares arranged according to the laws of chance. In these compositions it is chance that gives depth to the work of art. It points to an unknown but active principle of order and meaning that becomes manifest in things as their secret soul. It was above all the desire to make change, chance, essential. In Paul Klee's words that underlay the surrealists' efforts to take the grain of wood, cloud formations and so on as a starting point for their visionary painting. Max Ernst, for instance, went back to Leonardo da Vinci who wrote an essay on Botticelli's remark that if you throw a paint-soaked sponge at a wall in the splashes it makes, you will see heads, animals, landscapes and a host of other configurations. Above, one of Max Ernst frottages, usually rubbings taken from scratches on tiles from his natural history. Ernst's natural history resembles the interest taken in the past, in accidental patterns in nature. Above, an engraving of an 18th century Dutch museum exhibit that is also a kind of surrealist natural history, with its inclusion of coral, stones and skeletons. Enns has described how a vision pursued him in 1925. It forced itself on him as he was starting at a tiled, staring at a tiled floor marked by thousands of scratches. In order to give foundation to my powers of meditation and hallucination, I made a series of drawings in the tiles by laying sheets of paper on them and at random. 
and then taking graphite rubbings. When I fixed my eyes on the result, I was astounded by a suddenly sharpened sense of a hallucinatory series of contrasting and superposed pictures. I made a collection of the first results obtained from these frottages and called it Histoire Naturelle. It is important to know that Ernst placed over or behind some of these frottages frottage, a ring or circle which gives the picture a peculiar atmosphere and depth. Here the psychologist can recognize the unconscious drive to oppose the chaotic, chaotic hazards of the image's natural language by the symbol of a self-contained psychic hole, thus establishing equilibrium. The ring or circle dominates the picture. Psychic wholeness rules nature, itself meaningful and giving meaning. Right. Roman coins used in places progressively farther away from Rome. On the last coin, farthest from the controlling center, the face has disintegrated. This strangely corresponds to the psychic disintegration that such drugs as LSD-25 can induce. Below, drawings done by an artist who took this drug in a test held in Germany in 1951. The drawings grow more abstract, as conscious control is overcome by the unconscious. In Max M's effort to pursue the secret pattern in things, we may detect an affinity with the 19th century romantics. They spoke of nature's handwriting, which can be seen everywhere on wings, eggshells, in clouds, snow, ice, crystals, and other strange conjunctions of charms. Just as much as in dreams or visions, they saw everything as the expression of one and the same pictorial language of nature. Thus it was a genuinely romantic gesture when Max Ernst called pictures produced by his experiments natural history. And he was right for the unconscious, which had conjured up the pictures in the chance configuration of things, is nature. It is with Ernst's natural history or Arp's composition of chance that the reflection of the psychologist begins. He is faced with a question of what meaning a chance arrangement, whether and whenever it comes about, can have for the man who happens on it. With this question, man and consciousness come into matter, into the matter, and with them the possibility of meaning. The chance-created picture may be beautiful or ugly, harmonious or discordant, rich or poor in content, well or ill-painted. These factors determine its artistic value, but they cannot satisfy the psychologist, often to the distress of the artist, or of anyone who finds supreme satisfaction in the contemplation of form. The psychologist seeks further and tries to understand the secret code of chance arrangement in so far as man can decipher it at all. The number and form of the objects thrown together at random by Arp raise as many questions as any detail of 
earns fantastic frottage. For the psychologists, they are symbols, and therefore they can not only be felt, but up to a certain point, can also be interpreted. The apparent or actual retreat of men from many modern works of art, the lack of reflection and the predominance of the unconscious over consciousness, offer critics frequent points of attack. They speak of pathological art or compare it with pictures by the insane. For it is characteristic of psychosis that consciousness and the ego personality are submerged and drowned by floods of contents from the unconscious regions of the psyche. It is true that the comparison is not so odious today as it was even a generation ago. When Dr. Jung first pointed out a connection of this kind in his essay on Picasso in 1932, it provoked a storm of indignation. Today, the catalogue of a well-known Zurich art gallery speaks of the almost schizophrenic obsession of a famous artist and the German writer Rudolf Kastner described Georg Trachel as one of the greatest German poets, continuing there was something schizophrenic about him. It can be felt in his work. There is a touch of schizophrenia in it, yes. 2. Trackle is a great poet. It is now realized that a state of schizophrenia and artistic vision are not mutually exclusive. To my mind, the famous experiments with mescaline and similar drugs have contributed to this change of attitude. These drugs create a condition accompanied by intense visions of colors and forms not unlike schizophrenia. More than one artist of today has sought inspiration in such a drug. Thank you for listening. Ok, am revenit. Acum o să vă citesc o poezie de Ana Creon din Cartea din Lirica Elina. Bogăției. Dar fi să fie să-mi prelungesc cumva cu bogăția, traiul amar de scurt, aș fi fost omul bogăției, chivernisindu-mi eu mult și bine. Iar când din umbre caron ar fi sosit cu bani de mită, poate l-aș fi corupt să mai amâne ceasul morții, moartea să scape de în fața vieții. Însă de îndată ce nici cu bani nu poți să-ți mai răscumperi ani ce vin și trec, la ce folos să mă mai vaiet? Bocetul meu în zadar se aude. Căci dacă scrie în soartă cu scris adânc că vine moartea, ea va veni la timp. Și atunci ce să mai fac cu banii? Aurul scump de cel port în pungă. Mai înțelept e să-mi adun amici, sorbind de-a valma vinuri din stirpe mari, și apoi să-mi dea câte o femeie în brățișările ei de taină.